Welcome back to Mark's Madness. We're back. We're doing it again. We have time travel. We we the last time we talked to you was the beginning of chapter two point one, and now we have time traveled forward three weeks. Yes. And now it's chapter two point four. Yes. Um, a lot of shits happened since then. A lot of things have happened. A lot of things have happened. David, how are you doing? I'm still very hungover. You are still very hungover. That is a contingent. So again, if you want to Tarantino this thing back together, go back to chapter two point one. David was hungover. David. He's still hungover here. Where That's your in constant. The world is hungover, David. David. Yeah, no, that's solid. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep. We're keeping that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but problem number two, um, is the last time we talked to you, we were we were talking about David's track record for his oh, uh, yeah, his his insatiable this. ability to to just nail random foreign policy bullshit like that seems... Don't like this pedestal like that, this. I'm doing it. I don't care. Deal with it. You are the preeminent Marx scholar of Franklin County, and you are also uh, <laughs> right about all foreign policy decisions. Uh, this There's is a just, throwback to it. These are episode. just facts. The, the, the first episode, quite literally. Um, but yeah, so that being said, in the meantime... Um, uh, there's been a bit of a thing going on in Syria. Yeah. Um, and the Turks are involved. And the last yeah. time I had to worry about the Turks was during that weird Constantinople song. Um, so, David, what the fuck's going on in Syria real quick, just for oh, my own my edification? Goodness. Okay, okay. So, Syria for a long, long, long time... Uh, the U.S. has been wedging its way in to build military bases and oil drilling and things like that, that in northeastern like Syria. That yeah. seems like standard procedure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that region's heavily populated with uh, three ethnic groups, uh, Kurds, Assyrians, who are the indigenous people of the area, and Yazidis, who are smaller, um, also indigenous in different parts of the area. Um, and No <laughs> way. No way involved with the Kurds. I'm going to kick you in the head. You should. I deserve <laughs> it. Damn it. You also keep saying that. I've never. I've yet to see it. You're going to have to have one of these issues. I do prove. take Taekwondo right I believe now. that. I'm I gonna, yeah, kick you in uh-huh. the head. I believe right now you could not kick me in the head from where you sit. I could, I'd, I'd have to move the computer. Uh-huh. Box. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'd have time to move. <laughs> I'd have time to react. <laughs> so, uh, that said, uh, of course, not all Kurds are even supportive of the, the YPD. G Y K K type Y K K is in Turkey, um, but that those types of parties uh, that a long time ago were MLs and have been anarchist, uh, loosely guided for a long time. They do a lot of um, hey, we still put a red star up, so we're totally communist. Just trust us. And uh, lately, they've been partnering with the U.S. for several years. Uh, the U.S. to create the SDF. Oh, um, you said they were partner- partnering with the U.S. For a while they were, yeah. A uh, an ostensibly Marxist Leninist group was partnering with the yeah, United they, States. Well, they're, yeah, exactly. They're not so Marxist. All right, so I'm starting to see. I'm starting to see some holes in this thing. Yeah, a little bit of holes there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, even if they were a purely anarchist group, the idea that they were partnering with the U.S. would kind of uh, undermine that credibility. A right. Little quite a bit, bit. Quite a bit. Quite a little bit. I yeah. understand practicality versus ideology. You know, dogmatism goes out the window when you need to survive. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you're going to ally with someone, the United States kind of seems like the worst one to ever ally with in the history of time. <laughs> yeah. And of course, yeah, I mean, there was a war started uh, being claimed at that Syrian civil war, but it's really just a U.S. invasion using this YPG. And they, they've created the SDF, the Syrian Defense Force. In the area, and they've they've cut up this whole area into Rojava, which is supposed to be this like Kurdish uh, area that's that's now independent because apparently Assad was super oppressive. Which not not to say that Kurds haven't been oppressed over the years by many different leaders, but Assad was not especially oppressive to Kurds. Now to be clear, uh, the Rojava region happens to be that northeastern happens region. to be where all the oil is. Hey, I, nice I was going to walk us there a little slower, but yeah, yeah it, it is yeah. the northeastern region of Syria that happens to be home to the three major oil fields. Mm-hmm. It's also the region that uh, Assyria, but while well, Kurds certainly live there, uh, Assyrians, not Kurds, are, are the indigenous group too, but all you hear about is Kurds. All you ever hear about is Kurds. Kurds, 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 right? Uh, in fact, there was an issue in northern Iraq, uh, which is a Kurdish area, where they were trying to create a Kurdistan. And there's three different Kurdish groups, and it was the one that was wanting to make an ethno-state that the U.S. was backing for this Kurdistan, not the two that are more peaceful with their uh, Yazidi and and Assyrian brethren in that area. And uh, there's a lot of stories that had come out of that where, like, Yazidis were left alone to die at the hands of ISIS while Kurds, you know, backed out during that whole fiasco. Uh, Obviously, that vote went down in flames, what, a year ago? Mm -hmm. Um, About the same time, there were issues in this Rahava where... 
uh, different, like, say, Assyrian Christian churches and Assyrian schools and stuff were being shut down, and Assyrians were really being ethnically cleansed by these Kurds, right? I mean, it's—and it's, it's and, and not all Kurds. Assyrians live peacefully with Kurds. These these YPG, these, these hyper-nationalist ones, right? And— Hashtag not all Kurds. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Uh— but uh, anyway, you know, I mean, Assyrians, Yazidis just want to live peacefully, but they've been the ones who are really dying in the hands of ISIS, especially Syrians, because there's a large, it's a whole different type of Christian. Um, and obviously right-wingers, well, it's love to go, you know, oh my God, Christians are dying in the Middle East in the hands of Muslims is a talking point, and they don't actually give a shit. They only care about white Christians. Uh, but this is not your typical, you know, white supremacist Christianity, right? No. Not to my knowledge. No, and these are, you know, I mean, the, the primary victims of ISIS when they come through there because of the Christianity. Um but anyway, so after all these years of being oppressed by, you know, the SDF and ISIS and U.S. forces and stuff, now the U.S. forces are like, hey, we're pulling out of Syria, which I believe about as much as when Obama said they were pulling out of Iraq and didn't do it. You know, they're definitely not pulling out of Syria, but they are certainly making their force known to keep Assad from going north and protecting these Assyrians and the non, you know, uh, SDF Kurds and things like that. They're holding Assad off, keeping him south of this Rojava area. And they've basically, lying to the American public that they're pulling out and being so open about this, have pretty well said, hey, Turkey, you got a green light. Go genocide just some Kurds and some Assyrians, some Yazidis. Go get them. So why, historically speaking, if there is... If, oh, if Turkey can... is a long time uh, U.S. ally and has a long time huge difference with Kurds. And the U.S. was happy to use Kurds as pawns. Uh, but in the end, their best ally in the Middle East, not named Israel or Saudi Arabia... Uh, who's been an ally for over 50 years, who does jumps anytime the U.S. says jump, was not going to be thrown under the bus for, for Kurds. Not in a million years. Okay, so so now... So, so, so we have we have a, we have a ethnic group, because now the, the, the thing I'm trying to distill down and the thing I'm trying mm-hmm. to cut through is you, you live on Twitter, and this was the same thing with Hong Kong. As Hong Kong, when it initially kicked off... It was very hard as a leftist to gauge what side to be on because, and we mm-hmm. and we've talked about this over over months of talking mm-hmm. about Hong Kong. Well, traditionally, we you know all cops are bastards. This is fun. Why? Okay. Well, now there's cops going there, and there's levels of nuance going on where you have to understand which side. Whether well, yeah, I mean, when we say capitalism. all cops are bastards, we mean like all capitalist cops are bastards, and even Hong Kong, those are capitalist cops, but they're they're not serving the capitalists. They're serving China in this case. And so this, and so I kick now to uh, the same thing happening in Syria. Mm-hmm. For the last three years, we've been hearing, you know, Rojava has been this back and forth. Is it a leftist revolution that we should all get behind? Oh, shit, it's probably not that. It's probably U.S. puppet state, which is probably not no, before it's a, it. it's a U.S. puppet state that's <laughs> been attacking Assyrians hard. And now, so now, has you, as far as I understand, has U.S. pulled out of that region entirely? No, 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 no. They've gotten their troops out of the way for Turkey to come and kill, and they are pointing their guns still at Assad to keep him from coming up and protecting them. So this whole U.S. is pulling out of there is just bullshit so that they can wash their hands of it. And then, of course, Democrats and, and anybody that's that's vaguely left that doesn't care to understand about anything and doesn't care to analyze material conditions and cares to trust everyone that's lied to them before who is... I, I mean, this is not the first time Trump's even said he's pulling out of Syria. You no. remember before he said he was. I do. And then there was, like, supposedly a chemical attack in Duma, which the OPCW did eventually visit and test, and it was all bullshit. They've got a report that, that they tried to hold off and now has been made public that that was bullshit. But the night before they came to inspect, you know, France and, and the U.S. kind of together did a bombing that Syria intercepted the missiles from uh, with uh, anti-aircraft missiles and, and an actual old um, Soviet anti-missile defense system. Um, up to up, big up yeah. to Assad. So this big is up to our boy this Assad. is not the first time the U.S. has lied about pulling out of somewhere in the Middle East. They're not going to be pulling out of Syria. What they're doing is they're so then what? So then I guess the the better question, which you were probably about to answer, but mm-hmm. I want to frame it. So then, what the fuck is going on? Okay, what the fuck is going on is the U.S. is keeping their forces totally focused instead of maintaining peace or whatever, helping the SDF forward things. They're completely keeping their focus on keeping Assad out from regaining and protecting the area and letting Turkey come in. This was always a wedge to either balkanize the area, which they certainly got, and get the oil fields and get their military bases in, and they're not pulling all those troops out of there, or more importantly, 
they have plenty of control for Turkey. Just let Turkey take it over is what they're happy to do. And that's what's really happening. They're essentially, they broke the area off Syria, and now they're essentially giving it to Turkey, and they're protecting it. And there's a lot of people are getting this like, you know, oh, well, don't let the U.S. troops come out of there. You've got to protect the Kurds. You've got to protect the Kurds, which not only is still, still absent of the Assyrians and the Yazidis, and, you know, again, who are getting ethnically cleansed as it is in this Rahava, um, and were not protected by the YPG as they need to be, and certainly are going to be genocided by Turks just as much. In fact, the first bombing uh, was uh, a town that's heavily Christian and Assyrian, and it's just being played up like it's a tax on Kurds. Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, the U.S. troops aren't actually getting out. I mean, if the U.S. troops actually got out, then Assad could go there and protect them from Turkey, and it would be good. The problem is not that the U.S. troops are pulling out, it's that the U.S. troops aren't pulling out, is that they're not really pulling out. They're just asking Erdogan to do their dirty work. Yeah, and Erdogan... Um, is a giant piece of shit. Giant, yes. giant, giant fascist piece giant of shit. Giant fascist piece of shit, mm-hmm. which, which is in line with U.S. Okay, so so that that clicks and that makes sense because we're seeing a lot, like today, mm-hmm. I, I mean, they're ratcheting up the the heartstrings and all of that. I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing I'm I'm seeing supposed video of a, a interim Kurdish minister being raped and stoned to death yeah. by ISIS fighters and stuff like that. I mean, there would not surprise me. I mean, again, you know, since the Mujahideen, um, the the Wahhabist forces have been better allies to the U.S. than the the Kurds ever were, and some of these, you know ministers and stuff that, that were the U.S. was happy to puppet state, now that the U.S. doesn't find that puppet state. I mean, last time the U.S. didn't find a puppet state useful in the Middle East was Iraq. We remember how that happened in 2003. Mm-hmm. No. You know. Yeah, yeah, 2003. It stopped after that. It hasn't been an ongoing well, yeah. forever conflict. Exactly. But, I mean, so the U.S. is not afraid to just destroy a puppet state that's not doing its bidding well enough um, or not fitting its strategy well enough or whatever. You know, the U.S. is pretty gruesome. Uh, but ISIS, you know, that's why ISIS suddenly broke out in, in Iraq when they were going after al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was a longtime good partner, and then they got thumbed uh, by Osama bin Laden until Osama bin Laden started attacking America, and the U.S. basically had to put al-Qaeda back in its place, and it used the other splinter group that came from the Mujahideen, ISIS. I, I mean, it's not a coincidence. ISIS didn't accidentally break out. It was not just waiting to break out at a, at a moment's notice and always bubbling under. You know, it was there, but the reason it was able to grow is because the U.S. helped it, you know. This has been a very depressing um, conversation, mm-hmm. which we have occasionally on this. Yeah. So uh, it is now my job to make this slightly less depressing before we transition back to talking about Fanon, which ostensibly sure. is what we're here to do. David, I believe you were still with the uh, the fine those of us fighting the good fight at AT and T when we rolled out a mobile payment system oh, in in 2012 or so. Okay, do you remember this? It was back when this this concept of like tap to pay and mobile pay was really new, and AT and T okay. wanted to get on the ground floor of it. Sure, and we re- they we so far out of that shit. They released a app slash mobile payment system that, that they would give familiar, you. Yeah. They would give you. They were giving us like you and me. It was like fifty. They were giving customers fifty bucks to sign up for, just mm-hmm. flat out free fifty bucks. And they were giving I us like a ten dollar spiff if we got people on it. Yeah. Do you remember what it was called? No. It was called ISIS. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was called <laughs> ISIS. This was like twenty eleven. This was like three months before ISIS became extant and was a giant threat, and they had to change the name to Iris like six months in. But for about six solid months at work, we were pushing, hey, do you want to sign up for ISIS today? (laughs) And, oh, God, I wish I could go back to that because I just, I want to, oh, the, 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 the just pure joy that would have come over me of, yes, absolutely, AT&T would be signing people up for ISIS. Why not? This sounds like a perfectly reasonable strategy. So that was uh, that was very fun. Yeah, that no, being said, right. we're, uh, we're not reading a book about current Syria. We are reading no. a book about uh, 1940s Algeria, I yeah. believe. Um, and I think you're the only one that knows where we stopped last time. So yeah. if you want to kick this shit off, sure. go for it. 
The rising disconcerts the political parties. Their doctrine, in fact, has always affirmed the usefulness of a trial of force, and their very existence is a constant condemnation of rebellion, of all rebellion. Secretly, certain political parties share the optimism of the settlers and congratulate themselves on being well away from its, this act of madness, which it's said will be put down with bloodshed. But once the match is lit, the blaze spreads like wildfire through the whole country. The armored cars and the airplanes do not win through, uh, with unqualified success. Faced with the full extent of the trouble, colonialism begins to reflect on the matter. At the very core of the oppressing nation, voices are raised and listened to, which draw attention to the gravity of the situation. Keep going. As for the people, they join in the new rhythm of the nation in their mud huts and in their dreams under their breath from their heart's core, and they sing endless songs of praise to glorious fighters. The tide of the rebellion has already flooded the whole nation. Now it is the party's turn to be isolated. The leaders of the Rising, however, realize that someday or another the rebellion must come to include the towns. This awareness is not fortuitous. It is the crowning point of the dialectic which reigns over the development of an armed struggle for national liberation. Again, Fanon. Doesn't often mention the dialectic, but there it is. Yeah. Although the country districts represent inexhaustible reserves of popular energy and groups of armed men ensure that insecurity is rife there, colonialism does not doubt the strength of its system. It does not feel that it is endangered fundamentally. The rebel leaders, therefore, decide to bring the war into the enemy's camp. That is to say, into his grandiose, peaceful cities. The organizing of the rising in the centers of population sets the leaders some difficult problems. We have seen that the greater part of the leaders, born or brought up in the towns, have fled from their normal background because they were wanted by the colonial police and were in general unappreciated by the cautious, reasonable administrators of the political parties. Their retreat into the country both, was both a flight from persecution and a sign of their distrust of the old political structure. The natural receiving stations in the towns for these leaders are well-known nationalists who are in the thick of the political parties. But we have seen that their recent history was precisely an offshoot from these timid, nervous officials who spend their time in ceaseless lamentation over the misdeeds of colonialism. Moreover, the first overtures which the men of the Maquis make toward the, their former friends, precisely those whom they consider to be the most toward the left, will confirm their fears and will take away even the wish to see their old companions again. In fact, the rebellion which began in the country districts will filter into the towns, though that faction of the peasant population which is blocked on the outer fringe of the urban centers, that faction which has not yet succeeded in finding a bone to gnaw in the colonial system, the men whom the growing population of the country districts and colonial expropriation have brought to the desert, their family holdings circle tirelessly around the different towns, hoping that one day or another they will be allowed inside. It is within this mass of humanity, this people of the shanty towns, at the core of the lumpen proletariat, that the rebellion will find its urban spearhead. For the lumpen proletariat, that horde of starving men, uprooted from their tribe, from their clan, constitutes one of the most spontaneous and the most radically revolutionary forces of a colonized people. That, I feel like, needs talking about. Yeah, okay. Okay. No, I mean, no, and, and... because I feel like they're on, on two fronts. Mm-hmm. In the in the in the instance that Fanon was talking about, this is Fanon absolutely reaffirming the are the peasants a a, a revolutionary force for, yeah. for for yeah yes of course they are yeah but Ty- I mean, no go ahead that was his big turn when when he had the people run out of the parties for you know when they they were sought after by the police when they called out the opportunism and they found themselves you know cloaked and 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 taken in by by the peasants I mean yeah you know I, I, they're absolutely revolutionary. Absolutely. They're revolutionary, and, and we've we've been on that path since day one. But mm-hmm. let's try and bring this, let's try and let's let's try and do what we do, which is what would this look like in our our instance, in, in America, sure. for instance, because again, that's the one we have to talk about. But any industrialized nation, for instance. Yeah. Our lumpen proletariat, does that make up the the core of our urban spearhead? Hmm. I personally think it does. Yeah. Um, I mean, our lumpen proletariat is also a lot more urban, whereas here it was more rural. Is it? 
Do you think our lump and pearls? It depends on it depends on if you're looking at the black belt. Or What's the percent? I mean, at. and whether you can quibble about what the percentages are, but our lump. Well, and, I guess okay. So let's think of the lump and proletariat is right. You're yeah. gonna have. Let's define. Let's redefine for those let's, of us that have only gotten here. Yeah, because, let's redefine because we talked about the three waves of colonized people, right? We also know so, that most of you listening to this statistically did not listen to the capital episode, so you you know who you are. You may not have heard what lump and proletariat was. Um, David, go ahead. Okay, so anyway, so I mean, well, let's start with our lump and proletariat includes uh, the three waves of colonized people, right? Because truly, lump and proletariat is going to be people who are not participating as workers in the capitalist system. Um, but uh, honestly, it, it's it's really more of just a subclass, and because of of white supremacy, that subclass is going to be colonized peoples. Yes. Um, and because I mean, we're a settler colony, let's 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 be very clear about that. Uh, so you're going to have indigenous people who are either going to be in reservations, which is pretty rural, uh, or they're. They're gonna. I mean, they could be suburban or, or rural, but they're generally urban. Uh, if they've like you know had a family that's been say eradicated from its culture through boarding schools or, or things like that. So, okay, you got a, a, a pretty even split. Although where they're not urban, they're more specifically in reservations than loose rural, but Correct. not necessarily. Um, then you're going to have uh, black people, right? I mean, that's why people specify black indigenous people of color. Not, not to be clear. The lump, lump and proletariat in itself does not indicate, does not care about your race, class, or creed. It's, it's very, no. it is very egalitarian in its mm-hmm. accepting of everybody. Mm-hmm. It's anyone so who does not participate in the capitalist class in a traditional sense. People yes. that are not out there looking for work or out there trying to be employed. It's how Marx designated the, they're not part of the the grand reserve army of labor mm-hmm. because they are specifically intentionally not participating in that system. Yeah, no, what I'm forwarding is that because we're a settler colony, our functional up in proletariat are the working class colonized peoples. Understandable. Okay. So in that case, you know, now we're to, to the, the second wave of colonized people is black people. Um, obviously the black belt's very, very rural. And that's that's most of the population. But when you get outside the black belt, typically these heavily black areas are, are pretty urban. Um, you know, I mean, we see that like in in St. Louis, you got Normandy, Ferguson region. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the the big historical ones you can think of um, in like you know, say Harlem in New Harlem. York City or uh, South Central in in uh, L.A. and you know that kind of thing. So t- pretty urban areas, you know. Um, I mean, even in the Black Belt, Atlanta is is a huge city, and there's a very very big black population there. Um, and then you've got, and, and this is where the real break from it is. So it's been a little bit of a mixed bag up here. I guess it really breaks rural when you get to the third part, which is, you know, um, immigrants, uh, especially immigrants who've been, immigrants who are fleeing poverty caused by imperialism, whether it's acute warfare fleeing, like say they flee Honduras or they flee Syria, uh, or they're just, you know, fleeing a country that's generally been impoverished by imperialism. Again, the person... Immigrants from the global south. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're part of the lumpen proletariat if you're from that class. I had a... No, I mean, like, white Cubans are not going to (laughs) count. Yeah, exactly. But but even middle, you know, middle, there is a middle ground there where part of the proletariat... Again, I've I've mentioned her before, but a a woman I worked with um, in a a prior... By my prior employment Mm -hmm. was a, a... immigrant from Serbia, Serbia yeah. within the last, you know, 14 months at this sure. point, 12, you know, so, so she is a recent immigrant, but she came over as part of the eh, quote unquote professional class. She was in a, a upper, upper mm-hmm. middle class sort of job for whatever you wanted to define that as, and then worked yeah. with me as a, as a, uh, just average proletariat worker. Mm-hmm. And that, that, again, that's a person from an area that, that <laughs> American imperialism has absolutely oh, yeah. uh, 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 cut apart and demonized and, and, and bulk, you know, quite literally balkanized because it's the Balkans. Oh, yeah. When people think of, like, color revolutions, you know, they're not, like, immediately harking back to, say, the Philippines as much as Yugoslavia. I mean, it's... Speaking of, we're not doing it this episode because I'm going to give David time to prepare for it, but we are going to do, because I've noticed that we mention it a lot and I kind of keep nodding and don't know, 
Um, we're we're gonna do a sub episode on the color revolutions and what that mm-hmm. concept means and ways it was applied because we use it as a catch-all term, I think, in certain instances. Mm-hmm. But I know that I'm kind of weak on what it actually means, so I assume that a couple of you are too. So I will. I, sure. I'm gonna give David time to prepare, but we're gonna have a, a a bonus episode on what what color revolutions are, what they mean, and what they're how we're using that term. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And For that, now, but, just because no. that that is good because sometimes you know, I mean, when you use the term, like I tend to use it. it there's traditionally a set of of revolutions, and we'll get into this that are associated with colors for very specific reasons. Yeah. Um. And uh, it's because of that. Uh, fuck. What was it? it? Was the ninety? Oh shit. Uh. Uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs. It was from Reservoir Dogs. It was that Tarantino movie. It was, it was Mr. Pink and Mr. Mr. Gonna, Orange and Mr. Blue. I'm not going to kick you in the head. It's, I said it, too much. It's I'm, Mr. Gr- it's Mr. Gr- it, it was that one. That's the colors, right? It's the time frame, right? Am I wrong? Just, just, just going to rub. I'm wrong. Rub. I'm just going to bring it. The look I'm getting, and I'm going to rub it across your face. The look, guys. The look I'm getting says I'm wrong. Wash apparently. and wash this nonsense away. I've, I've apparently, I've apparently erred in judgment here. Yeah. I was, I was incorrect. Uh, that, that said, goddammit. Uh, that said, you know, I mean, when I use it, I, I use it typically not along the lines of this is a specific revolution that's associated with this color in the traditional sense. And you'll find it on Wikipedia. It's all of those revolutions that were done with a specific color. And you can really air quote revolutions. They've really been imperialist insurgencies. They've operated on a certain script. These are imperial insurgencies that operated on the same script is Makes what sense. I do. And that'll make more sense when we explain that. In depth. Well, and, and we will we will go in, in, in a little bit of depth on that yeah. to just just to kind of give us a. Uh, I think that's worth at least a, a twenty minute kind of episode of itself, mm-hmm. kind of a, a mini madness, just to kind of get it get it there. But yeah. But again, this all this all spurned off of this concept of the lumpen is the lumpen proletariat in this country. You know, you know, obviously in colonized countries, mm-hmm. Fanon was very, very, you know, keen to the fact that the lumpen proletariat was going to be mm-hmm. a spearhead. Is that going to be the case in our country? And I, I don't yeah. know spearhead. I don't know because I feel like that always gives a uh, this connotation that they're you know front line or that they're they're taking some heat unnecessarily. But yeah, I feel like the lumpen proletariat in this country understand better than almost anyone the contradictions. Yeah, that what the contradictions are, are where where the contradictions not only exist and and need to be addressed, but where they threaten us the most too. Exactly. You know. Um, I mean, it's, it's again, kind of what he said here, you know, the lumpen proletariat have everything taken away from them, whereas the proletariat, you know, don't. So the lumpen proletariat see it where, where it is, you know, and even yeah. in our country, you don't see colonialism at its rawest as much, but I tell you what, indigenous people <laughs> certainly do, yeah. you know, black people, especially in poor black, heavily black regions do, you know, I mean, Im- immigrants right now who are being thrown in freaking concentration camps do, do. you know, I mean, that's, Yeah. And this is not again. This is where you say you know you read Marx when he's right, mm-hmm. and you don't when you don't. And this is like this is I am comfortable at this point with with my as far as we've gone mm-hmm. along in these various <laughs> endeavors. Saying I, I'm okay deviating from Marx on this point. Marx yeah. Marx seemed to think that the proletariat was the only was going to be the revolutionary class, and they'd be the only one. And I think Lenin... Uh, in his writing, he kind of indicated that at times and kind of didn't at others. But in his action, it's it's more of a mixed bag. It's more mixed bag. But it, the lumpen proletariat, the peasant class... The peasant question yeah. is answered. I don't yeah. think there is and a I peasant think... question anymore. It's answered. Yes, the, pe- the your, your lumpen proletariat is absolutely a revolutionary class. They absolutely need to be someone that you are not only including intimately in whatever mm-hmm. your plans are... Because they are as revolutionary as anyone else, but you need to be, you know, they need to be at the vanguard. They need to be part yeah. of this movement because they understand it as well as anybody else. Yeah, does. and so when it comes to peasants, I mean, obviously, you know, Marx is important. Everything here, reading Lenin is fine on peasants. It's not bad. And he leveraged them. We talked about it big time yes. in the Russian Revolution. No, yes. But if the first real, like the oldest source that you really want to jump to really talking about peasants is probably Mao. Mao's, Mao's the one that really starts wrapping them in the way they, they should and be. And we're going to at some point double mm-hmm. back to Mao and this is again a little bit of a deviation but I, I, not to get too far off track um, I I think me and David have both agreed off air and on air um, as much as we would like to get back into I mean there so, so to be clear if you listen to the Dumb and Awful episode mm-hmm. 
um, that I did. Uh, there are a couple works that we I covered that we didn't cover on the show. Uh, specifically, what is to be done? Left wing communism, foundations of Leninism. Mm-hmm. I think those are all really interesting and really useful texts. That being said, I don't want to get back to another Western or even Eastern Western. I, I would I would much rather this. Pull straight from the global south about colonization. Going yes, forward. because right now those well, are the where and, the revolution. And even with that, like you know, I mean, we're reading Fanon here. Fanon can be a little confusing to read at, at at times. Marx was certainly a little confusing to read. Lenin was pretty straightforward, but it was good to add some context. You read Stalin, it's pretty straightforward. It's very straightforward. Yeah. And I, I I don't think foundations of Lenin is. And again, if you want a, a quick and dirty on it, again we I I went on dumb and awful and tried mm-hmm. to explain it quickly. They put very, they're very good at putting timestamps on their shit, which we don't. Yeah. Um. So you can go quickly go to that one, but I I really 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 think that the the better thing we can do right now is be putting forward as many disparate voices as humanly possible voices that aren't as amplified in modern Mm -hmm. and so that's again why we are we are 100% locked in that Redskins White Masks is our Mm -hmm. next book and then I would much I I mean I think I think we're both leaning towards some variation of either neocolonialism or something in that ilk as our yeah I think neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah will probably be I think that should be I think that should uh, be. I've mentioned, you know, I've been kind of eyeing Emil Carcabral. Uh, I believe it's revolutionary and decolonization. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe at some point we'll, we'll we'll circle back to Walter Rodney. Maybe not. Uh, we've we've talked about some some Harry Haywood stuff. We're we're gonna go along that that path there. And it's not to say we won't ever circle back and get to like what is to be done um, if we feel it's needed or if it comes back up. No. Like, but it's but it's also it's to not, say it's it's not in in it's not the direction we're trying. And to be to clear, the you know. If you really are interested in Foundations of Leninism or what mm-hmm. is to be done, uh, Brett and Allison over at Red Menace have done those mm-hmm. books, um, and they did a very good. I, they don't do we do different things, so I, I never shy away from doing a book that mm-hmm. they did because I think our styles are so different. But if you want a quick rundown, they're there, and mm-hmm. they they do a great job of of running them and, down. It's just all of these books are ones we hope you read along with us and discuss in groups along with us if you can. You know, I mean, again, we're happy to work as Cliff Notes. Uh, but really, we're, we're just hoping to, to make it easier to read yeah. and give context and open the accessibility through an audiobook or the text, especially Foundations of Leninism, because that's that's not too hard of a text to, it's to get a through. Vi- it was, as I understood it, Foundations of Leninism was supposed to be something that was read by almost like school children level. Yeah. Like it was supposed to be, le- like it was Stalin's, like we're going to pump this out in mass to everybody so they understand why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should have got, and, and I think you get that as we go through what we do. But yeah. but again, I'm I'm much more interested in the colonial voices. Um, I, I, I do... Want to read Shea <laughs> really bad? I know it doesn't fit in with ours because it's more military tactics more than anything else. But I do yeah. want to read Shea. Um, Brett brought up a really good point during the last episode, and I've been looking for something from Ho Chi Minh that I would like to read because mm, I. Yeah, the difference. I don't know if he has any. He he writings. does. He has a couple unique texts. Most honestly, one of his more unique texts is just explaining why he believes in Lenin. Um, but Ho Chi Minh was much more of a teacher than he was a writer. Yeah. But uh, again, speaking of why you believe in Lenin and things like that, uh, Russian Revolution by Walter Rodney uh, was just released by the Walter Rodney Foundation. Seriously? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. Read well, that. Yeah, read that, <laughs> and then I might go read that, and then we might read that for the show. Fuck. Yeah. That's so. that's fucking awesome. Okay, yeah. so yeah, just 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 in case you were curious as to what the what the forward direction was, I'm sure you're all on the edge of your seat. Um, it's a lot more. Um, it's a lot more like Fanon and a lot less Stalin and Lenin and Marx mm-hmm. because those guys get plenty of play, and I. Not that they don't deserve it, just they, not that they don't deserve it. But other people are doing it, and someone the other day brought up when I when I brought up Fanon to them, they were like, I didn't realize that colonial you know that there was colonial theory or that people from these colonized countries had written down theory and stuff like that and i oh yeah no, there's a lot there's a lot there's a lot that we won't get to there's a lot and a, and it's again what when we read revolutionaries i mm-hmm. want to read revolutionaries that went through a revolution mm-hmm. and if there's something you'll notice it's that there's not a lot of french revolutions lately that we could talk about or a lot of english revolutions or a lot of german revolution 
But in Africa, Thomas, mm-hmm. I absolutely want to get into and the Pearls of the Roundtable episode they just did on Thomas Sankara, fantastic episode mm-hmm. they did on Sankara. But Sankara is an, an absolutely a figure that I want to cover at some point or mm-hmm. d- dig into if he's if he's got good writings in there somewhere. So that's that's going to be our goal going forward is to try and cover more. Um, Non-white, non, <laughs> yeah, uh, global South voices. Yes, because mm-hmm. that's I think where we're we're doing our most good. So yeah, yeah. I just deviated for about twenty minutes or so. David, do you want to keep reading about Kenya and sure. the Mau Mau? Sure. In Kenya, in the years preceding the Mau Mau revolt, it was noticeable how the British colonial authorities multiplied intimidatory measures against the lumpen proletariat. The police forces and the missionaries coordinated their efforts in the years 1950 to 51 in order to make a suitable response to the enormous influx of young Kenyans coming from the country districts and the forest, who, when they did not manage to find a market for their labor, took to stealing, debauchery, and alcoholism. Juvenile delinquency in the colonized countries is the direct result of the existence of lumpen proletariat. In parallel fashion, in the Congo, draconian measures were taken from 1957 onward to send back to the countryside the young hooligans who were disturbing the social order. Resettlement camps were opened and put under charge of evangelical Mm. missions, protected, of course, by the Belgian army. The constitution of a lumpen proletariat is a phenomenon which obeys its own logic, and neither the brimming activity of the missionaries nor the decrees of the central government can check its growth. This lumpen proletariat is like a horde of rats. You may kick them and throw stones at them, but despite your efforts, they go on gnawing at the roots of the tree. The shantytown sections, the nation's biological decision to invade at whatever cost, and if necessary, by the most cryptic methods, the enemy fortress. The lumpen proletariat, once it is constituted, brings all its forces to endanger the security of the town and is the sign of the irrevocable decay, the gangrene ever present at the heart of the colonial domination. So the pimps, the hooligans, the unemployed, and the petty criminals urged on from behind, throw themselves into the struggle for liberation like stout working men. These classless idlers will, by militant and decisive action, discover the path that leads to nationhood. They won't become reformed characters to please the colonial society, fitting in with the morality of its rulers. Quite on the contrary, they take for granted the impossibility of their entering the city, save by hand grenades and revolvers. These workless less than men are rehabilitated in their own eyes and in the eyes of history. The prostitutes, too, and the maids who are paid two pounds a month, all the hopeless dregs of humanity, all who turn in circles between suicide and madness, will recover their balance once more, go forward, and march proudly in the great procession of the awakened nation. Now it should start coming into the fold with you where you go, oh yeah, the Black Panthers wanted people to read Fanon. Oh, yeah, the Black Panthers were trying to unite the gangs against a common enemy. Like, oh, this is all clicking. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, this is where you, you, you see him refer a couple of times to sex workers in this. Sex workers, domestic labor. Domestic labor. You know, yeah. um, and again, Fanon is, and we've mentioned it, and it's a notorious critic. I don't think I'm bringing up something new. Fanon is... Uh, not great on um, sexist grounds. I mean, mm-hmm. he is he is he 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 fairly falls into that ground. He's not great on on LGBTQ grounds. Um, but again, bringing in you know uh, sex workers as laborers, as mm-hmm. as members of a a working class, and and members who don't need to be educated on the contradictions of of imperialism and yeah, colonialism. Yeah, I mean, he's got them lumped in with the the revolutionary lumpen proletariat here, which is 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 true. You know, I mean, something that it's it's not ours to debate how just sex worth is in a vacuum. I I think women can handle that, especially a lot of women who've been former sex workers. Uh, what is ours to notice is that. You know, not only are sex workers part of the the revolutionary class and working class as it is, uh, but any time that there's something that takes away the legality and criminalizes sex work, uh, that's that that's not good. We don't. It want makes that. it. Yeah. it, it. All, that, does not, that does not get rid of sex work, sex work. It makes sex work more dangerous. Yeah, and and 
and just pushes sex mm-hmm. workers to a, a again, a further fringe of of recognized and, and legal society that is not good for anybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, whether whether you're someone who who thinks, you know, woohoo, sex work is, is this magical pathway to liberating women, or you think, no, sex work is, is just a reinforcement of coercion and misogyny, or some something in between. Whatever, something we should be able to agree on is that the only material battle ahead of us with sex work is the criminalization on it, which does nothing yeah. but harm women and sex workers, 100%. and and we have to fight directly and passionately against Same that. way you can argue against, oh, oh you may think that... that drugs or whatever are, are a, a bane on society, but yeah. anyone who's acknowledged that yeah, no, we, we absolutely shouldn't be imprisoning, you know, marijuana dealers or, or buyers yeah. or, or possession of marijuana at a level that, that keeps you in prison for the rest of your life and denies you basic human liberties is kind of insane. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between running around and saying, you know, taking drugs is revolutionary or some goofy thing like that, when obviously, you know, we saw the crack epidemic in the 80s, um, and then saying, like, well, no, criminalization of drugs is nothing but bad. Yeah. Nothing but bad. Nothing and but we bad. should fight that passionately and, and fiercely and directly. In every uh, and, and the same thing, you know, again, with sex work and drugs, the stigma of it, you know, because even if, if you do believe it's harmful, that's, that's not the harm people worry about with it. Um, and that's the level of panic is far and above anything it could cause. And it comes down directly on, you know, sex workers, people with addictions, people that use, you know, drugs recreationally or medically responsibly. You know, everybody like that, even it just comes down hard on, on everyone. And so there's a contradiction there where you can argue something is, is good or bad and you shouldn't, you know, go running around saying like, well, if we all turned to sex work and did a bunch of drugs, it'd be like magical woo-hoo revolution, right? <laughs> uh, and then going, well, no, I mean, I, I, unapologetically, we need to be battling the criminalization yeah. of these things head on. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. And so it, it is good that he, he touched on that there. Back to the text. Yep. Nationalist parties? The nationalist parties do not understand this new phenomenon, which precipitates their disintegration. The outbreak of the rebellion in the towns changes the nature of the struggle, whereas before the colonialist troops were entirely concerned with the country districts, we now see them falling back in haste on the towns in order to ensure the safety of the town population and their property. (laughs) Keys their property. Yeah, that's... that's The property, you say? Oh, no. My my glass windows. What's I'm going to do? Um, the forces of repression spread out. Danger is present everywhere. Now it's the very soil of the nation, the whole of the colony which goes into a trance. The armed groups of peasants look on while the mailed fist lose its grip. The rising in the towns is like an unhoped-for gas balloon. The leaders of the rising, who see an ardent and enthusiastic people striking decisive blows at the colonialist machine, are strengthened in their mistrust of traditional policy. Every success confirms their hostility toward what in further they will describe as mouthwash, word-spinning blather, and fruitless agitation. They feel a positive hatred for the politics of demagoguery, and that is why they be. Why, in the beginning, we observe a veritable triumph for the cult of spontaneity. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where he's kind of saying, you know, spontaneity has an advantage. And it's it's just like we you touched on Lenin and left-wing communism, you know, and, and like, say, the Spartacists were a reaction to opportunism. It's a reaction to things. And so it has limitations, and its limitations can even be very, very counter-revolutionary. But its, it's roots are revolutionary. And it drags in that direction because it reacts in that direction. Let's say it is, let's say its roots are revolutionary. Let's say all of it's revolutionary. Yeah. Occupy. Spontaneity has its limitations. We've established that spontaneity has its limitations. And without some form of overarching Mm -hmm. ideology to guide it will inevitably lead to nothing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just right down the rabbit hole, you know. Um, but the thing I always think of when he talks about the, the or the thing I always think of the second time reading through it, the thing I thought of before <laughs> reading about it was uh, Marx talking about the the young Hegelians and their critique of religion um, and how, you know, I mean, it comes from a very, very righteous place. You know, I mean, the, the way religion has disabused people and focused, you know, especially on, on making the downtrodden reactionary, things like that. But 
if you're battling religion, you're you're fighting you know the wrong battle, right? Yeah. It's, it's misplaced. Yeah. Um, you know, you have the the same thing with spontaneity. It's it's misplaced, and you know, just like love and comedy is all misplaced, and so it has its limitations, and that's what this chapter is really rounding into. Is like the spontaneity is good. Don't don't be arrogant. Don't be against it. You have to embrace it, but it has its limitations. You have to teach people through it, and this disconnect is is the root of all these issues. You know. Trump said. Uh, the many peasant risings which have their roots in the country districts bear witness wherever they occur to the ubiquitous and usually solidly massed presence of the new nation. Every native who takes up arms is a part of the nation which from henceforward will spring to life. Such peasant revolts endanger the colonial regime. They mobilize its troops, making them spread out and threaten at every turn to crush them. They hold one doctrine only, to act in such a way that the nation may exist. There is no program, there are no speeches or resolutions, and no political trends. The problem is clear. The foreigners must go. So let us form a common front against the oppressor and let us strengthen our hands by armed combat. So as long as the uncertainty of colonialism continues, the national cause goes on progressing and becomes the cause of each and all. The plans for liberation are sketched out. Already they include the whole country. During this period, spontaneity is king and initiative is localized. On every hill, a government in miniature is formed and takes over power. Everywhere, in the valleys and in the forests, in the jungle and in the villages, we must find a national authority. Each man or woman who brings the nation to life by his or her actions and is pledged to ensure its triumph in their locality. We are dealing with a strategy of immediacy, which is both radical and totalitarian. The aim and the program of each locally constituted group is local liberation. If the nation is everywhere, then she is there. One step further, and only here is she to be found. Tactics and are mistaken for strategy. The art of politics is simply transformed into the art of war. The political militant is the rebel. To fight the war and to take part in politics, the two things become one and the same. This people that has lost its birthright, that is used to living in the narrow circle of feuds and rivalries, will now proceed in an atmosphere of, sol- of solemnity to cleanse and purify the face of the nation as it appears in the various localities. The veritable collective ecstasy, families which have always been traditional enemies, decide to rub out old scores and to forgive and forget. There are numerous reconciliations. Long-buried but unforgettable hatreds are brought to light once more so that they may surely be rooted out. The taking on of a nationhood involves the growth of awareness. The national unity is first the unity of a group, the disappearance of old quarrels, and the final liquidation of unspoken grievances. At the same time, forgiveness and purification include those natives who, by their activities and by their complicity with the occupier, have dishonored their country. On the other hand, traitors and those who have sold out to the enemy will be judged and punished. In undertaking this onward march, the people legislates, finds itself, and wills itself to sovereignty. In every corner that is thus awakened from the colonial slumber, life is lived at an impossibly high temperature. There is a permanent outpouring all in the villages of spectacular generosity, of disarming kindness, and willingness which cannot ever be doubted to die for the quote-unquote cause. All is evocative of the confraternity, a church, and a mystical body of belief that one in the same at one and the same time. No native can remain unmoved by this new rhythm which he leads the nation on. Messengers are dispatched to the neighboring tribes. They constitute the first system of intercommunication in the rebellion and bring movement and cadence to the districts which are still motionless. Even tribes whose stubborn rivalry is well known now disarm with joyful tears and pledge help to succor each other. Marching shoulder to shoulder in their armed struggle, these men join with those who yesterday were their enemies. The circle of nation widens and fresh ambushes entrap the enemy, hail the entry of new tribes upon the scene. Each village finds that it is itself both an absolute agent of revolution and also a link in the chain of action. Solidarity between tribes and between villages, national solidarity, is in the first place expressed by the increasing blows struck at the enemy. Every new group which is formed, each fresh salvo that bursts out, is an indication that each is on the enemy's track and that each is prepared to meet him. This solidarity will be much more clearly shown during the second period, which is characterized by the putting into operation of the enemy offensive. 
The colonial forces, once the explosion has taken place, regroup and reorganize, inaugurating methods of warfare which correspond to the nature of the uprising. This offensive will call into question the ideal, utopian atmosphere of the first period. The enemy attacks and concentrates large forces on certain def definite points. The local group is quickly overrun, all the more so because it tends to seek the forefront of the battle. The optimism which reigned in the first period make the local group fearless, or rather careless. It is persuaded that its own mountain peak is the nation, and because of this, it refuses to abandon it, or to retreat, or to beat a retreat. But the losses are serious, and doubts spring up and begin to weigh heavily upon the rebels. The group faces a local attack as if it were a decisive test. It behaves as if it, the fate of the whole country was literally at stake here and now. Mm-hmm. But we sh- and and by the way, that that I just keep thinking of like you know Mao on practice yep. right there. Yep. You know? Yeah. Um, but we should make it quite clear that the spontaneous impetuosity, which is determined to settle the fate of the colonial system, immediately is condemned. Insofar it is a doctrine of instantaneity to self repudiation. For the most everyday practical realism takes the place of yesterday's effusion and substitutes itself for the illusion of eternity. The hard lesson of facts, the bodies mown down by machine guns, these call forth a complete reinterpretation of events. The simple instinct to survive engenders a less rigid, more mobile attitude. This modification in fighting technique characterized the first months of the War of Liberation of the people in Angola. We may remember that on March 15, 1961, a group of two or 3,000 Angolan peasants threw themselves against the Portu- uh, Portuguese positions. Men, women, and children, armed and unarmed, afire with courage and enthusiasm, then flung themselves in successive waves of compact masses upon the districts where the settler, the soldier, and the Portuguese flag held sway. Villages and airports were encircled and subjected to frequent attacks, but it must be added that thousands of Angolans were mowed down by colonialist machine guns. It did not take long for the leaders of the Angolan of the Angolan uprising to realize that they must find some other methods if they really want to free their country. So during the last few months, the Angolan leader, Holden Roberto, was re- has reorganized the National Angolan Army, using the experiences gained in various other wars of liberation and employing guerrilla techniques. And we're going to learn more about those guerrilla techniques next week because this is the end of this week's episode of March Madness. Um, it's it's been it's been a doozy. This has been a weird week for me and David. We yeah. usually take at least a week off between having, and it's it, we're we're together again. Together uh, again. Yeah. Um, that being said, thank you very much for listening. If uh, if you want to talk to us. Um, at Mark's Madness Pod, we hang out there. Yeah, um, we we are very responsive, mostly because I refuse to uh, let anything die because I uh, I'm broken inside and and, and just want to have dialogue with people earnestly on the internet. Um, uh, discords. If you hang out in the Beep of Lettuce Discord or the at Dumb and Awful Discord, I am there almost all the time responding to people. Um, so so you can come hang out with us there. And uh, if you want to donate to us on Patreon, you can't because we, we don't, don't have do one. Nope, and we won't. So you can go donate to the Dumb and Awful Patreon or the BP Lettuce Patreon or anyone else's Patreon that you feel like should deserve it, but uh, but not ours because we don't have one and we won't. So um, that being said, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.